Thank you very much for joining us again on yet another When Movies Were Good. My name's Rachel here in Melbourne, Australia, with my great friend and special guest uh, co-host, Matt. Matt, how are you doing over at your place today? Yeah, I'm doing good, uh, working on all my isolation hobbies. Yeah, I know. We're um, still here. I don't know where everyone is that's listening to this is based around the world, but we're still in a really hard lockdown here, at least until maybe next week, so... We'll see what happens. Look, who knows? I just take the punches as they come. Yeah. Well, we have to do that now. And But as we always apologise while we do the show, this route, uh, that the audio probably cuts in and out because of the, the Wi-Fi, the stress on the Wi-Fi from everyone using it. So apologies uh, to that. We, we do look forward to when we can record in person together because it just sounds so much better. So, Matt, we are doing um, a double this week. We're doing a Fred Astaire... Ginger Rogers double. We're doing Follow yes. the 1930 and Shall We Dance 1937, both from RKO, the, the company studio that made them, and both directed by Mark Sandrich, who was a big sort of uh, very well-known director whose life was very tragically cut short. He only died when he was 44 from a heart attack. So that's why I was wondering, I hadn't heard of Mark Sandrich, the director of both of these films, a bit more, but it's because he did a lot of yeah. work, came up as a tradesman, was in the silence, made these films in the 30s and was doing really well and then sort of unfortunately passed away very suddenly as, a, as I mean, 44 is a bit younger now than it was back then, but still not old. So, uh, yeah, so that, I was a bit sad to sort of hear that. So we're doing these two films. Actually, Matt, these were your suggestions. Uh, had you actually seen these films before? You just owned them for a while, or? Uh, no, no, I've seen um the films quite a few times, and particularly Shall We Dance. That, if any, is the movie that is responsible for really getting me into the classics. I love it. I've seen it so many times. I think the the music is um really catchy. I love Gershwin's music, but also uh, so many of the like I find. Every era of films has a distinguishing characteristic that I keep coming back to it for. And in the 30s, it's that really great witty dialogue. So it's not like um, a lot of the dialogue you'd see in a drama by uh, someone like Tarantino, where it's like a a lot of subtext or even back in the time uh, with films like Robin Hood, where it's a much more one-dimensional uh, hero type dialogue, but just uh, uh, particularly in a lot of these comedic dance films, like uh, I just love the all the bits of uh, wit. Like I, I uh, smiled to myself so much in that um, beginning line of uh, uh, "Shall we dance?" when uh, a bellboy uh, makes an excuse in um, in French uh, for drawing on the company owner's portrait, and he just asks uh, this stuffy man just asks the other guard, uh, "What did he say?" and he just says. It means the same thing in French, Monsieur. <laughs> yeah, and also there's a lot of, um, you know, sort of side lines and side eye and, and uh, you know, sort of little quips and a few double entendres. And, yeah, I mean, um, it's all very cute. And it's all very – these films are very easy to watch as well. They're just, you know, you put them on, you sit back, you enjoy them. I especially like, you know, being a big music lover myself, I like any film that have um, music in it. 
um, especially the ones that just get out there and do it and that aren't pretentious. And then you had two of the most famous musical writers of, of like back then what were considered modern sort of pop songs, which was in Berlin and the Gershwin Brothers. So, I mean, you can't really get any better than that. So we'll start yeah. with, with, with the film Follow the Fleet. So this one was, as we had mentioned, they both came out from RKO. Ginger and Fred had gone over to RKO um, when they – Ginger had had a couple of contracts, I think, at Paramount and at Pathé, and then she came over to RKO and her background was actually in musical theatre. In fact, I believe that's where she first met um, Fred Astaire back in Broadway. So um, Follow the Fleet was written by Alan Scott and Dwight Taylor and, of course, stars Fred Astaire. Ginger Rogers, and I didn't realise that was Randolph Scott. I was like, who played Bilge in this film? I was like, hang on, where do I know this guy before? Oh, my God, it is actually Randolph Scott. So it was really nice to see him in this film because he became quite uh, well-known for his Western uh, work uh, yeah, in the 40s and 50s. It's quite fascinating the different cameos you can see come up and, like, uh, this one has some others, like, of uh, uh, Lucille Ball as well and, uh, like, a uh, I spent ages trying to work out who she was, and I had to, uh, like, eventually cheat and look up online, and it, it was only this very tiny uh, part she made um, uh, in Follow the, the Fleet. And, and it's... it's I, I, I'm looking for my sister. Yeah, I believe she's the one that um, uh, gave Ginger's sister a makeover. Okay, and then Betty Grable... Was and who was a massive pinup in the war era? She was in this film as well. Yeah, so I uh, it it was a little bit hard to um find um some of the uh, where these cameos um showed up because you you when you're looking you're biased in sort of the stereotypical image. Like I kept looking for the I love Lucy Lucille Ball, and I realized oh wait she there was actually a time in the history when she was young, uh, and but. Uh, I found her, and I believe Betty Graber was one of the uh, uh, group group singers um, at um, Ginger's Club. So we'll just remind the audience what the or inform the audience that haven't seen the film. So Bacon Bilge have just docked in San Francisco. So it's in, uh, they're technically in the Navy. I didn't know there was so much singing and dancing in the Navy. If there is, uh, Matt, I should sign up for it. But um, Bake wants to get back together with Sherry, who played by Ginger Rogers, and then Bilge meets Sherry's sister, Connie, and he has romance in, in his mind too, and there's lots of hijinks and uh, things that go on, plenty of fantastic dance numbers, especially in their Navy uniforms. Uh, <laughs> it's just such a it's just such a feel-good film. So what were your what did you think of this this particular film of Ginger's? Well, I, the one of the favorite parts, perhaps naturally, is um, their most iconic um, scene towards the end of the "Let's Face the Music and Dance" um, part. And the film as a whole, um, looking at both films as a whole, I probably lean more towards "Shall We Dance" because it has a lot more of my favorite numbers. But the "Let's Face the Music and Dance" uh, that really makes the film. There's a, I love the bits with the little monkey uh, coming about. Uh, the little monkey in a sailor suit that was so funny uh i think uh the plot is um probably is uh probably a little more extended than it had to be i think uh, they probably forgot that okay you're 
effectively doing a storyline plus the musical numbers. So you probably need to have a story that can be compacted a little more. Uh, but I uh, think it's a greater, uh, especially if you may have a younger person who's not used to uh, black and white films, it's a great one to get them started on. What I feel bad for, though, is like, obviously they're fictional sailors, but I'm just thinking uh, from this period, uh, made about five years before World War II, and I'm thinking, well, you boys don't know what you're in for. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, it's, um, yeah, it probably I found both films maybe a little long for what they needed to be, uh, but it doesn't matter. Even, because shall we, even shall like, we dance? Yeah, probably found shall we dance a little bit long as well, but you know me, I'm big into 90-minute films and... <laughs> <laughs> Especially, that's probably something that also turned me off modern films. I just find them all three-hour films. It's just, it's just not that these films are. But um, so I probably preferred. I just like this was the fifth film that they had made together, and they made these films in a very short time. Now both of them came from such a pedigree of singing and dancing. It's interesting. Uh, you actually sort of told me this about Fred initially that he was such a stickler for rehearsals and rehearsing everything a million times to the point where he did drive some of his female co-stars and fellow dancers insane because he, you know, was just such a stickler for rehearsals and everything, whereas Ginger was one of the few, if not the only woman that worked with him, as he said years later in interviews, that could tolerate what he dished out, like the other girls would run off and cry and stuff, and eventually they get it and it was fine. But she would keep on going and he said it wasn't necessarily because she was the best dancer but she was most intuitive and she was a good actress because she actually went on and had quite a career after this musical phase and she worked right up until you know old age really she's on the love boat in the 70s so and and in her older life she was a uh, quite a vocal um presence for um a lot of uh, conservation efforts in a lot of films because a lot of uh uh, people probably don't know this, but most films made, especially uh, up until the early 50s, were made from silver nitrate uh, base, which is uh, often quite flammable and prone to acid burn, etc. And so at this critical point in the 70s and late 80s, Ginger was quite a uh, vocal presence for um, conservation efforts, which we take for granted now in a lot of museums and motion picture archives. She, she she did seem like an activist um, and she was, uh, I mean, I don't know whether her being an only child, I think both her and I didn't actually realise that Fred Astaire sort of had stage managing parents as well because he had been training as a dancer since he was four or five with his sister Adele. And I yeah. think that the family packed up and moved from the Midwest to New York uh, or the area around there to start the kids in performing for vaudeville stuff i didn't actually realize that about him so yeah well there are certain people like fred astaire and buster keaton where they just had it bred into them from uh, when they could walk and it, and it worked um uh, and you're glad it, it happened for them like you hear of a lot of people that do acting classes from when, when young and stuff and it doesn't work out so well but uh, lucky for him but i think yeah sort of that yeah <laughs> yeah but i think also a lot of that um he is like we're we've gotten so used to dancing being a very um uh erotic format uh, whereas uh, fred was more about it being not that he was a 
thinking of it in a ballet sense, but he was focused on it uh, being a as a almost like an acrobatic um, uh, uh, craft, and uh, perhaps because he spent so much of his um, early years um, play acting the role of a uh, uh, of a of a couple, even though his sister was the dancer in his early uh, in his early uh, career. I, I actually I think there's a quote of a producer with the, one of his first uh, non-related um, co-stars, and he's like, "Put it a bit together more. She's not your sister or something like that." I actually that sounds familiar. I'm sure I probably read. I think I read something about that, but um, I suppose that's why. And he even did say in interviews as he got older, even after he had sort of officially retired from performing as such, he said always commented that she was by far the most suitable partner for him because she could handle, she could pretty much handle what he what he dished out. So, yeah, look, I, 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 liked, I would probably say I like this film a little bit more than Shall We Dance. Not that I probably prefer the music in Shall We Dance more, but I think the actual story storyline in Follow the Fleet, I think I preferred that a bit more and I like the naval setting and all that sort of stuff. And I actually really liked seeing um, Randolph in this film uh, and definitely want to make more of an exploration into his, especially his Western era of films. But he was a very um, long performed and, and long lived uh, actor himself, even though he's sort of performing sort of, he wasn't Ray Milan or anything, he was performing well into the 80s. But um, he definitely had quite a long career and he was a sensible man with his investments and stuff. And I also read an interesting thing about him and Cary Grant that I wasn't aware of. Yeah. But, um, you know, not to get too far away from discussing the film, but, it, uh, yeah, it, I, I sort of saw photos of them together when they lived together as friends and I was like, wow, I actually had heard about a few of the other sort of uh, romance that had gone on with some of the leading men in Hollywood, um, especially being, you know, an Anthony Perkins and, and Rock Hudson fan. But, um, yeah, I actually didn't know about that at all. And then when you see the photos of them together, you're like, wow, how, how could, uh, and then apparently the studio really closed that down quite fast. But this was a fun, fun role for him uh, in this in this film. And I do, yeah. I mean, he's actually had in this film, let's face the music and dance, for example, they were actually like in our top 40, I guess you'd call it now, but in the hit parade, as they called it back then, uh, they were actually all very successful, successful songs. So I, I think I actually enjoy the music in this Film. Actually, the, the music in both films are written by the, the greatest yeah. composers ever to emerge. So, um, well, the well, the music and film industry and theatre could often be uh, quite close at the time. Like, it's uh, I collect a uh, seventy-eight gramophone records, and uh, so many of my collection uh, have uh, this music title from this movie and that movie, and so. Oh, part of it was obviously uh, a, a marketing uh, ploy, uh, but I think uh, most um, uh, movie theater and uh, uh, and music people were kind of aware that they were sharing in the same pie, and they knew and they at least had an idea of how to sometimes uh, uh, match the flavors, shall we put it? So if we go into the second film that really was made literally, I mean, Fred was kind of pumping out the films at this point. I think that's what put a lot of people under stress because they were constantly making films. So Shell Dance came out in 1937. From what I read, 
Fight of the Fleet was a bigger box office success than Shall We Dance. Not that Shall We Dance failed or anything, but I also was reading that it, sort of the audience was like, yeah, how many Fred and Ginger movies are we going to see type thing? And they were kind of shifting their focus onto other pairings and other sort of stars that were coming up yeah. at that time. Uh, so it sort of was the last. They would yeah. make other films together when they years later. Yeah. But uh, this, at this period, I think this was one of the last films. Is that yeah. right? Is this one of the last films they made at this period? Uh, anyway? w- one of them, yeah, because like part of it, it's not the film's fault. It's just that when it happened to uh, appear in the chronology of their partnership and uh, – like that's how how the studio system worked, it, and still now, where uh, you you find something that works and you write uh, it out as um, uh, as long as it will go. And I think it's unfortunate because like you can sort of tell a lot about how uh, film is uh, thought of in the popular consciousness by looking at Wikipedia entries, and because like uh, it kind of relies on um, the interested members of the public to write it, and. Uh, that film seems to be uh, thought of uh, purely in terms of um, uh, where it stood in the economic stance uh, in the trajectory of Fred and Ginger's films. But uh, I think it's uh, uh, really uh, should be regarded as one of the best pieces of 1930s film. It's yeah. uh, it has a st- like you were saying that you um, uh, weren't as keen on the plot yourself. I uh, personally, I, I liked it, and I liked a lot of the witty lines. And you had so many uh, good um, back characters, like you have um, uh, Fred's uh, Fred's manager and the uh, the hotel manager Cecil Flintridge. Uh, yeah, so I th- I think a lot of the uh, so probably it's uh, uh, and I guess maybe maybe that's how their uh, script writing um, worked in that in that series. They uh, sort of have different um, audiences that they tapped into. Yeah, so, so this one for our audience is um, in this one, Fred's playing a ballet dancer, Petrov, and uh, there's a showgirl who he sort of comes involved with, uh, such, uh, Linda, who's played by Jim doing this one, and fake a marriage of convenience or rather people around them do, and then, of course, you know, in the typical fashion, they they end up falling in love. And I love how these films end with them sort of looking at the camera and sort of winking. Um, except, except they didn't plan to be in the, in the fake marriage of convenience. Yes, that's true. That's actually true. That was, that was planned without their sort of knowledge. But I actually love all that sort of stuff about, you know, the different sort of plot lines with people being forced into something they didn't realise they were forced into and then, and then it all all works out. It all works out at the end. Yeah. So, well, it's yeah, a sort of it was, plot farce that a generation earlier would have been used in Gilbert and Sullivan type productions. Yes. Um, actually, um, yeah. It, it, my favourite Gilbert and Sullivan is Patience. Have you ever seen that one? <laughs> and that one's a little bit like, yeah, uh, yeah. I can see what you say. Say that. And Gilbert and Sullivan is definitely important, especially if you watch Gilbert and Sullivan now. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it did, it did actually remind me a little. Well, I think um, well, I think uh, Gilbert and Sullivan probably used a lot of the uh, plot twists of like babies swapped at birth and stuff that you see in a lot of the Shakespeare dramas, but put them in a setting that made them a lot more comical. Yes. Um. Yeah. I don't actually come to think of it. I don't mind a good old um Gilbert and Sullivan because I really love the the singers like singing their butts off on stage. It's fantastic. So I this one was the of the sea. 
Yeah, I remember I when I was living in London, I dragged someone to go and see a Gilbert and Sullivan show with me at the Savoy of all places. And they were like sitting there going, what is this show? Like, what the hell? And I'm like, it's Gilbert and Sullivan. That's just what it is. It's ridiculous. And they're they just kind of never copped on to the concept. But you can only, with a lot of these films and, and these particular niches in these genres, you really, if you have an appreciation and study a little bit about it, you just will enjoy it so much more. It's like when you've actually studied, say for, you brought up Shakespeare, when you actually study a Shakespeare piece and you understand it and then you go and watch the play, it's just so much more enjoyable because you you're, you know what's happening, you know. So, you know, the tropes that are being used and, you know, turn of phrase and everything, you understand it. So it does, it makes it so much more enjoyable. So this one, again, was directed by Mark Sandridge um, and yeah. written by Alan Scott and Ernest Pagano, or Pagano, I'm not sure if I'm saying that one right. Uh, yes, this one, uh, so the first film was Irving Berlin and Max Stein and this one was the Gershwin brothers who had been involved in actually, uh, Freak was quite involved with because he worked with them on Broadway um for several years because that's where he initially from my notes here he initially initially had met ginger when he was helping the choreography on a play called girl crazy and um and i think involved in that one and that's where he knew her from initially so when she kind of eventually came out to hollywood he was already um he was already familiar with her so um if my research was was right if i didn't misread that so um, yeah, I mean, I did. I mean, uh, you can't take that away from me. It's one of the greatest songs of all time. And mm. Fred, yeah, I love to, that. Yeah, it's just, and it's used in. Um, when I was researching this, I I kind of went off Steve Martin years ago. I don't I don't know why. I know he's more into banjo playing and stuff now, which is great. But um, <laughs> he didn't. <laughs> he, he said he seemed more his banjo and playing his banjo than doing any acting, which is fine. Which he's probably just fed up with. Anyway, which a lot of older actors are, but um, he did a film with Bernadette Peters, who was a well-known Broadway actress, called Pennies from Heaven. And a lot of those those musical numbers apparently are in this film, or they're paid homage to in this film. And that film came out in the early eighties. I'd actually be interested to see that that film. And I'm wondering if that's where I heard you can't take that away from me. Oh, it must have been on an ad or something, Me- but it, I, I know they use it in other films. I know that it's Me- often a music cue in other films. Maybe. I was about to say I'd seen that film, but then I realised I was thinking of Three Coins and a Fountain. They, they need to be yeah. careful how many uh, movies they make with currency in the name. Um, yes. What I do know is that actually Fred uh, regretted that in that uh, number they didn't use any uh, dancing because that's one of the few um, numbers in the film that doesn't have an active... Um, uh, that's not actively done to dancing. And when they had a reunion picture in like 1949 or something, they actually did do a uh, uh, do that song again, yeah. set to dance. Uh, yeah, but Barclays pers- play or something called something like that. That was like their yeah, something like that. I- yeah. Well, it's 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 the inter- it's the internet uh, age. We don't need to remember things. People just need to know the year 1949, Fred and Ginger reunion, and they can find out themselves. Yeah. Um, yes, I actually, yes, that's right. And now, now now you say that it makes sense because they, did, at the end of the film, they do bring that back as a musical cue. Do they, they bring, you can't take that away from me, back as a bit of a musical cue when they're doing one of the last dance numbers. But I think, I don't, I'm not sure whether Gershwin was upset that they didn't use it more as a, 
a centerpiece for dance as well, or Fred was more upset okay. about that. I thought it was but, fine. Uh, where, where they did uh, use it was sort of as a kind of a love light motive um, in that scene uh, in the last um, third when they almost uh, part ways because of uh, they've gone to their separate um, hotel rooms and they're outside. You can see outside both their windows and they're playing it quietly because it's quite, quite a catchy melody. And you're sort of, um, that's when they're engineering that you hope that they think to go into each other's rooms. Uh, whether that was, a uh, like part of that was, uh, probably to do with, um, what you could or couldn't do with the senses at the time, but, uh, it's, uh, it was kind of a good, uh, they used it as a tie in theme. I still, I still think it was used quite effectively and it's, you know, you can even sing that song to younger people and they'll be vaguely sort of familiar with it. So Yeah, I just think it's got a great, really great melody. I love, I love music from that period. It's, uh, I, uh, <coughs> it's, it's uh, probably the era that I listen to a lot, uh, the most. Yeah, I, I, um, I like all different eras of music, but I must say there was something about, you know, <laughs> you know, being a Liberace fan, you know, you're, you're, you're drawn to music from that era. That's when his TV show sort of started in the 40s and all that sort of stuff. Or more, maybe it was more 50s, I think it actually started in. But, um, you know, he often would play a lot of, yes, he would play his classical music, but he would also play a lot of, like, period music um, like You Can't Take That Away From Me as well on his TV show, which was very popular. Yeah. So I've always to you know, music from that era and really I was listening to some Bing Crosby the other day and being good old sing along with that and I was like I can't even believe I know these songs but when you you know Matt and I are probably especially Matt being a lot younger than me are probably very old souls so we have always gravitated to these sorts of older format music and just you know especially with what's on the radio today although I don't mind I don't mind some a few songs that come out every now and then you know if I hear them but I really actually liked Slap that face that he did. That was the one. He oh, how great is that piece? So, like, I I watched that in in in, in bed on YouTube uh, a few times over. It's just such a great melody. I love the and I love the setting to the to the big steam. I mean, uh, also I'm a bit of a steam engine nerd, so it works in with that as well. But just they're tapping around on the with the big shadows from the machinery to time with the melody. It's such a great rhythm. Going on in society now, you actually forget that those black musicians and performers, what trailblazers they actually were, and yeah. a lot of stuff and how they were used in films. And I, I, I get it. We had discussed this and gone with the wind as well. But I think it's also nice to just separate that off for a bit and just enjoy them for the talent that they were and are, you know, and not bring and all the political stuff into. It. In a way, it was. Um in a way it was honest because they were acknowledging that if Fred was, because actually it's almost like a kind of a, a Titan, like the mod James Cameron Titanic type lead, type lead up where she's uh, going down to, um, to the sort of the real people down below deck in the same way that the, um, uh, in the same way that you have that uh, conflict uh, just before um, that scene, when the manager's trying to find him and the, the best thing the uh, uh, steward can say is that, oh, maybe he's in someone else's stateroom. But no, they they were honest that they knew that if they were going to show that sort of music, they had to go below deck. 
Yes, yeah. I actually, it was one of my favourite sequences in the film and it was just a joy to see them. So I think it's sometimes nice to get away from what's happening in modern society and actually appreciate these performers and what they actually had to endure to even be performers back then. And it was fantastic to see them in the film and I'm just glad that they were in it because they were fantastic. So, but, so I think overall if we're kind of wrapping up our thoughts on the film, I'll go first. I really liked the films. Yes, I probably think both of the films were slightly long, but I I think a lot of films are slightly long, and as you get to know me, you'll probably realise that. It doesn't mean they're bad. I just probably would wrap them up a little bit quicker. But having said that, who cares because it's Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers and it's the music of two of the greatest composers that, you know, ever lived. And they're fun. They're lighthearted. I love everyone in the films. I love seeing Randolph in the, in, um, in Follow the Fleet. Probably would lean slightly more towards Follow the Fleet because I liked that story a little bit more but still enjoyed both of them, loved all the supporting actors. Um, so thanks for introducing me to them, Matt. Thanks for sending me the films to watch them. Oh, you're welcome. They're particularly Shall We Dance. It always makes me smile when I see it. Yeah. No, they're great. They're just lovely. They're lovely films. So you probably preferred Shall We Dance over... Yeah, I, I, admit, it's, I, I admit I probably could have... Uh, if you put the musical pieces into any plot line, I'd have probably preferred it anyway. And that maybe that's uh, just uh, how the how the mind works sometimes. But yeah, that's uh, definitely um, one of my favorites. I did love the sort of the uh, Gilbert and Sullivan type uh, uh, plot farce. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so it's uh, quite funny in that way. But um, yeah, I, and like the whole Art Deco style with the opening credits on Gershwin's name and everything, um, uh, to me, it's one of the, the best uh, 30s films. It's I think that and King Kong are one of the, personally, I think are one of the top achievements of the Art Deco period. Yeah, I, I definitely want to go through and have a look at some of the other top films of the 30s because, but as Matt and I often say to each other, we're going to be at this for the rest of our lives, which is a good thing because obviously we're going to be spending a lot of time indoors for the foreseeable future. Yeah. <laughs> So, I'd actually um, like um for Shall We Dance to be like re-released um with the uh f like uh, with the digital restoration and the uh, fixing of the analog and a bit of a side note they're actually in a multi-decade long project at the moment to uh create like a a rescoring of the uh, of Gershwin um Gershwin's uh, music for that film because it's uh, I think only been partially it's not been properly done and like it's going to take a couple couple of decades apparently to sort of get his comprehensive vision for it i don't know why but i look forward to when they can uh, uh properly really re-release all the sound yeah anything that helps to preserve what these amazing people did all those years ago and it's that really they were even just the way that the films put together the sound and music you think how primitive the stuff that they had back then and yeah it's, it's so much We've gone too far the other way now where there's so much computer work and digital work and the whole thing looks so fake that you're like, I much prefer literal effects and literal sound effects and, yeah, they're a bit more quaint or whatever. Like even if you look at the Star Wars films, you compare something like the puppet version of Yoda to the digital version of Yoda and the digital version of Yoda is just so boring and it's not interesting and... Um, yeah, well, it's just like, I watched, no. yeah. Well, I was watching on just on my phone with the sound turned off uh, last night. Uh, the bit of Jaws when they're 
having that final confrontation with the shark uh, because I hadn't seen it yet, but I knew the uh, trouble they had with the fake shark and the, yes. to to get it um just uh, looking right and the like putting one frame too many um ruined uh, the effect. But I thought it was very effective, even though we know that in real life it was a very unconvincing model. Yeah. Um... Yeah, exactly. I just all the work and all the puppeteering and all the, of the practical effects. So I think that's why it's amazing to watch these films from even the pre-code films and stuff when they just started getting into talkies. Just the fact that they were merging, you know, sound and audio, you know, audio and visual together like that. I mean, it's really, you know, these people now are really nothing in comparison to the sort of technology that they were having to deal with and how hard it was to manually put it everything together so just you know even the way that they you know Fred and the discussions he had about how his dances were to be shot and the types of filming that needed to be done so everything was continuous yeah well they put themselves through such the ringer to make those dance numbers because uh partly because of um the requirements of the dance partly because of the requirements of the cinema they had to keep doing multiple takes and they'd have to keep changing their clothes so much because they were getting constantly uh, really sweating in them. And like you were saying, Fred Astaire was very prolific, but we're not talking about just uh, Hollywood acting here. We're talking about someone who's doing like Olympic level athletic performance. And you only have so much time to do that uh, to the, to the fullest. And uh, so he was probably um, trying to get in everything he could. Uh, yeah. He did a great job uh, about a, a decade, no more than that, almost uh, 20 years later in Funny Face, and he could still uh, move, his, uh, move his ground then. But uh, Yeah, yeah I'm sure you've peak. seen him at the Academy Awards when he was, like, in his early 70s and was it Bob Hope that made him, you know, quite, quote, unquote, made him do a dance routine. He was still flying around the stage at, you know, he was pretty winded and he was using that as a bit of a joke as to why he couldn't read the names of the um, nominees out properly. But... Um, he still could move and it just goes to show you really if you can keep yourself in shape and keep you know conditioned you really can but, keep going for a long time so the, tr- the yeah. trouble isn't doing the performance it's the day after yes yeah i think that's what he was alluding to because like i can't even breathe here but yeah but he still looked and he really was someone that didn't look that much difference he, he only looked like an older older version of of his younger version whereas you look at some other actors and and it's like i mean i was gonna i just was uh, matt knows that i watch a lot of like soap opera type things i was watching alec baldwin and something in 1985 and then literally i turned it off you know he was very slim and and an ad came on with this insurance ad that he does here i was like is that even the same person like my god it's just wow how different he looks but you know, it, there's <laughs> there's something about keeping yourself in condition. So I think yeah. Fred definitely taught us about that. So thanks to Matt for uh, a fun, another fun discussion about two great films. So for next week, so the next cycles one, we have a Gary Cooper double. We actually just decided this right before the show started. So we're doing um, High Noon, one of his very famous 1950s pictures, and that's with a very young Grace Kelly. A very famous film. And then another film, as I was joking to Matt, I've been wanting to see for of about 30 years uh, with one of the loves of my life in it, uh, Anthony Perkins, and that's um, So Friendly Persuasion. So one sort of a, a, a Western and the other one's about is like a, a sort of Civil War era drama about a family of Quakers. So I think they'll both be really interesting. I'm really looking forward to seeing both of them.
Yeah, it'll be great. And uh, High Noon is um, uh, interesting in that it's almost in real time. I, I, I know of the film. I know of both of the films and had been meaning to watch them for many, many years, especially Friendly Persuasion. But, you know, back when I was getting into all sort of stuff, it was very hard unless he could find them on a video cassette somewhere. Or D, um, you know, DVDs were only just starting to come out back then, but, you know, or on TV. It's actually hard to just go out and find a movie and watch it. So uh, I'm grateful now that we have yeah. a bit more technology and I think so we can just, yeah. you know, find the movies and watch them. So, and, um, yeah, so, Matt, do you want to just let everyone know again where they can find us? Yes, as always, you can um, uh, find our Instagram at when movies were good. That's our Instagram handle. Uh, same with, with Facebook. We're also on Twitter. And if you want to get notified when our new videos come out, uh, please hit the subscribe channel and tap the bell notification and you'll um, get immediate notification in your feed. And we will look forward to sharing our new series with you next time. Thanks very much, everyone. So in the meantime, I'm Rachel. I'm Matthew. And we're watching good movies. Thanks, everyone, and take care.